Hello everyone. I'm Ratan Veg, your host on Tech Discourses. I welcome all our listeners today to a brand new episode of Tech Discourses. Hello everyone. Welcome to a brand new episode of Tech Discourses. I, Ratan Veg, your host, welcome all our listeners. Today we talk about a very interesting topic which we came across beauty by chance. Today's topic is architectural innovation. I know it sounds a little bookish at first, but stay with me. I'm sure you will enjoy the topic. We begin today's discussion with an equally interesting anecdotal story. Well, it's not actually anecdotal because the story actually took place. It's completely based in facts. So let's start with it right away. Uh, Today's topic we chose because of the interesting links to history that it has and its relevance to the modern world of technology. Architectural innovation, what's common between World War and Blitzkrieg on the battlefronts of Europe and modern organizations, historical fumbles with disruptive technologies. A spoiler alert, we will talk about how technologies are disrupting modern enterprises and how modern enterprises are, despite everything that we continue to hear and despite the lofty stories about uh, about foresight and about management capabilities and, and all of that, despite all of that, the modern organizations still continue to fumble when it comes to facing disruptive technologies. So as a background, let's talk about the term, the Blitzkrieg. How was the term coined? How did it come about? How was how was it invented? Well, it turns out that the Blitzkrieg is a term that's, that comes from the First and Second World War. And the story goes like this. Major JFC Fuller, at that time, 37 years of age, was posted was posted at the Somme battlefield in France at the time of World War I in 1916. On that battlefield, Major Fuller observed for the first time the awesome power of the newest savagery in, in the war technology, known simply as the armored tank. Major Fuller immediately seized that this new machine, the tank, holds the answer to most perplexing tactical question in modern-day warfare. How to cross an open muddy field littered with trenches and barbed wire against a haze of blazing guns? No approach had worked so far and even hundreds of thousands of brave men laying down their lives only had as much effect as millions of raindrops washing against stone facade. But the tank held the most promise, for it seemed indestructible carried more firepower and could march on undeterred in all kinds of weather and most all ground conditions. Major Fuller enthusiastically sent reports of the success of this new weapon to the English war leadership. To Major Fuller, the evidence of tank superiority was undeniable and hence there exists every reason for tanks to replace the archaic ways of horse-mounted cavalry warfare. All the major countries in World War I, which lasted from 1914 to 1918, entered into the conflict with cavalry forces. German forces continued the use of horses on the Eastern Front well into the war, while on the Allied side, the United Kingdom used mounted infantry and cavalry charges throughout the war. 
The British war leadership was deep thoroughly in tradition and failed to see the alternate methods, regardless of the pragmatism or inevitable tide of changing times. One British general compared the faces of soldiers riding horses to those riding tanks and quipped about the lack of intelligence on the face or faces of tank-mounted soldiers. Not just the leadership, many soldiers on the front lines who had never seen tanks in action were at best skeptical of the new beast. Major Fuller sought transfer to the tank division and went on to produce brilliant papers of how to break the German lines, destroy vital rail and road links, invade deep into the territory and strike at the German war offices. A tactical approach aided by airstrikes and resting squarely on unarguably superior technology available to the British Army in form of tank will surely make quick work of the Germans, Major Fuller conceived. By striking suddenly at the German command, the Blitzkrieg will cause the German army to disintegrate and fall. Major Fuller did give up hope and continue in his efforts undeterred, despite facing continued rebuttals and continued skepticism. In late 1917, during the Battle of Cambrai, the British war leadership finally gave in to Major Fuller's persistent demands and decided to use 400 tanks to attack German front lines. Unsurprisingly, the British tanks decimated German defense system and made quick work of the barbed wires and shrugged off lines of soldiers firing guns at the armored plating of the tanks. A measly top speed of 4 miles per hour was enough for the tanks to run through German war lines and trenches. The Germans were caught off guard and outmaneuvered tactically and strategically. What Major Fuller had foreseen, exactly that came to life. The soldiers who saw the power of tanks for the first time were awestruck, beyond belief. It was as if a dream come true for, for many soldiers. In what can only be dubbed as an irony, the British Army decided to send in horses to take advantage of the gaps created by the tanks. This nonsensical, steeped-in tradition and absolutely unrequired move allowed German forces to regroup and drive the British back. The momentum was lost, and so was the tactical and strategic opportunity. Major Fuller, once again undeterred, carefully documented the events, recording what worked well and what may be improved. Putting his analytical, strategic mind to work, his immediate thoughts were not to confront his generals or his superiors, but how to document everything that went wrong with the initiative so that the same mistakes could be, could be avoided the next time. After the war, his ideas were reluctantly accepted and dubbed Plan 1919 to be used in the year 1919. I'm sorry, during the, during the last days of the war, his ideas were reluctantly adapted and dubbed Plan 1919 to be used in the year 1919. Major Fuller's work did not go completely unrewarded. For his pioneering papers in strategy work, Major Fuller received many accolades and won the gold medal from a prestigious think tank of the day. The most important possible beneficiary of his careful and well-documented work, however, remained cold and unreceptive. The British Army continued to give Major Fuller a cold shoulder. The most brilliant and accurate strategic work in modern warfare was seen more as a threat than an opportunity and was quickly sidelined. The 
The beliefs of British war leadership were so deep-rooted that the newly formed tank corps and rapid advances in tank technology throughout the war years amounted to exactly nothing. Before Major Fuller's plan saw the light of the day, the war ended in 1918. However, that was not the end of tank warfare or, for that matter, the strategy of sudden lightning-paced attacks backed by airstrikes destroying vital road and rail links that Major Fuller had conceived. Exactly 20 years later, at the start of World War II, Germany used the same blitzkrieg approach to effectively lap up entire Europe within a matter of weeks. Almost unchallenged and nearly unstoppable, Germany used Major Fuller's tactical and strategic approach to their benefit. Despite possessing clear technological superiority and strategical advantage of having a brilliant war strategist in Fuller, the British cobbled away the technical and strategic momentum to German forces by late 1930s. Major Fuller's strategy proved right, not just right. In fact, it was proven to be arguably the biggest breakthrough in war technology since the invention of guns. Now that brings us to a very interesting thought. If major countries and and major war machines are reluctant to change even in the face of clear and undisputed evidence, then are the modern enterprises and modern companies any different? How enterprises react to innovation? Let's take a look. Major Fuller is not alone in in his experiences and nor is the blissful ignorance of ground realities a trait reserved for British war leadership. In 1970, the photocopying giant Xerox developed a state-of-the-art research center in Palo Alto, California called PARC, P-A-R-C, short for Palo Alto Research Center. PARC scientists quickly paid back Xerox by doing innovative work in laser printing that would establish Xerox as leader in printing technology for decades. Shortly thereafter, Xerox scientists developed the first computer, truly ahead of its time. Steve Jobs, during one of his visits to Park, was stunned by what he saw. The mouse and computer interface was truly revolutionary, he felt. Xerox, however, had other ideas. Despite the evidence right in front of them, despite the working model right in front of them, the same Xerox leadership team that led its Park scientists to produce breakthrough in laser printing technology in 1971 and many other innovations and established Xerox as a worldwide leader in printing technology seemed equally capable of squandering away the strategic advantage held by a true game changer, the personal computer. Xerox was then dubbed as the company that fumbled the future. We all know what happened with with the computers and how Steve Jobs took the 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 humble computer which used to occupy an entire room and cost hundreds of thousands of dollars to unprecedented heights. In 1975, Stephen Sasson invented the first self-contained digital camera at Eastman Kodak. Sasson's patent claimed an arrangement that allowed the CCD to be read out quickly in real time, 
into a temporary buffer of random access memory and then return to storage at the lower speed of the storage device. Essentially, all modern digital cameras still use such an arrangement. Think about it. The technology that Eastman Kodak had in 1975, that is the foundation of all the modern digital cameras today, was once again squandered by a blissfully ignorant leadership at Eastman Kodak. Steven Sasson's camera was not the first one that produced digital images, but it was the first handheld digital camera. 37 years later, in 2012, the digital technolo camera technology became the prime reason for Kodak's demise. Though eventually Kodak did market both professional and consumer cameras, it did not fully embrace digital technology until it was too late and its rivals like Sony had had made massive inroads into, into the market with, it, with its popular range of cameras. That effectively was the, the last nail in the coffin for, for Kodak. In 1999, Sony launched world's first digital music player. Sony possessed the iconic and generation-defining brand Walkman and had endorsements of virtually every heavyweight in the music entertainment industry. Yet, within a few years, Apple's iPod defined the music industry, virtually destroying the Walkman promise. Sony worried about cannibalization and was slow to react, thoughtful and digital at every turn. On the other hand, Apple, nimble on its feet and unhindered and unrestricted by Steve Jobs' brilliant mind, took Sony to the dumps. If it built a music player and service that made it easy for people to share digital songs, Sony thought that it might hurt digital sales of its own music, of its own, own record division, which had its own profit and loss statement. Apple, on the other hand, had no such qualms. It worried about one thing and one thing only, how to give the customers the best possible experience. Steve Jobs' business was simple and radical. Never be afraid of cannibalizing yourself. If you don't cannibalize yourself, somebody else will. The result is a bed of roses for Apple while becoming thorns under the skin for Sony. By 2013, Nokia had lost four-fifths of its peak market capitalization in 2007. Customers were driving away in droves to competition. Nokia had ignored the glitz and glamour of Android while it severely underestimated the new ecosystem. Microsoft lapped up Nokia's handset business for a fraction of its value. And what's even worse, Microsoft had to write off the complete investment that it made in Nokia four years later. The brand of Nokia had suffered to that extent. Microsoft's own Windows OS phone was in no way a challenger to Android, iOS domination. When Satya Nadella took over Microsoft from Balmer in 2014, within the first couple of years, he wrote off the entire $7.2 billion of Microsoft investment in, in Nokia. He gave up efforts to review to, to renew Microsoft's seven-year foray into, into mobile phones and put the entire Microsoft mobile phone business on the chopping block. Again, the hallmark of a great leader, never afraid, 
never afraid of cannibalizing their own business if it makes sense, if the evidence is in front of them. This is a particularly hard pill to swallow as Windows OS had won over many critics with its arguably superior interface when it launched in 2010. Yet, today, when looking back at the decision that Satya Nadella and Microsoft took, everyone calls that a success factor in Microsoft's journey. The initial success was short-lived and couldn't be replicated subsequent versions of both software and hardware. And that led to Microsoft taking the painful decision of, of completely stopping the Windows OS software and, and the phone. Could it all be a coincidence? The tank-powered blitzkrieg, the underrated digital camera, the before-its-era personal computer, and carry-in-your-own-pocket digital music player? Could it simply be that, that you know, well-established pioneering organizations that are otherwise at the top of their game lose out to maverick newcomers? Or, or what powers does the engine of growth in an unconventional yet strategically sound product and technologies possess that the top companies and 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 brilliant leaderships fail to see why do organizations get complacent and let upstarts overtake them well these are some questions that have been bothering people for a very long time isn't, isn't guiding the organization through unknown times the primary purpose of bringing together the leadership teams who are paid hundreds of millions of dollars? If the top organizations are failing so miserably and so often, there must be some reason, some logical, rational explanation. Answers to these questions are often hidden underneath layers of organizational culture. Many modern business people, strategists, and industry watchers coined the term disruptive and attached it to any new product, service, or technology that sought to bring something new to the consumers. Hence, disruptive technology came about. In short, disruptive technology meant any new technology or way of doing things that disrupted, in pure business terms, the business and the industry dynamics in such a way that the incumbent organizations must adapt to the change or fall by the wayside. In the face of disruptive technology or product, the incumbent organization needs to maintain its leadership status by embracing it as quickly as possible. If the organizations keep doing what worked for them in the past, they are more likely to fail as such disruptive forces demand disruptions to the way of thinking and ethos of working. Disruption in classic business parlance describes a process whereby a similar company with fewer resources is able to successfully challenge a much larger established incumbent business. Dis let's look at the disruptive innovation and architectural innovation and let's illustrate it with a few examples. In the face of disruptive technology and, and architectural innovation, the question is that why don't organizations adapt? It's certainly not for lack of innovation. For, for Kodak, Sony, Xerox, and all the, all the companies that failed later were pretty innovative back, back in their heyday. 
then what made them lag behind and eventually lose the fight? This is where the theory of disruptive innovation pioneered by Clayton M. Christensen comes in. Briefly, the theory of disruptive innovation and Clayton suggest this. Specifically, as incumbents focus on improving their products and services for their most demanding and usually most profitable customers, they exceed the needs of some segments and ignore the needs of others. Entrants and new companies that prove disruptive begin by successfully targeting those overlooked segments, gaining a foothold by delivering more suitable functionality, frequently at a lower price. Incumbents chasing higher profitability in more demanding segments tend not to respond vigorously. The new entrants then move up market, delivering the performance that incumbents' mainstream customers require while preserving the advantages that drove their early success. Or in other words, they continue to, ser- to service the, those tiers of customers which were ignored by the incumbent company while also making inroads into the main, main market segment of the incumbent companies. When mainstream customers start adopting the entrance offerings in volume or in or in service or new service types, disruption has occurred. While the incumbent leader organizations are looking elsewhere, the newcomers arrive unburdened by legacy, take a half-baked product or technology and make rapid progress carving a niche market and gaining foothold in the industry to displace the incumbent. The theory of disruptive innovations explains as much as it leaves out. The theory is certainly valid and elegant for the most part. Clayton Christensen has a single clear idea of how disruption happens and recommends a solution to disrupt yourself before you are disrupted by someone else. This is what the top companies fail to do. This is what repeatedly the companies and the leadership and and the people who ignore the evidence in front of them continue to do. However, stretching this idea of disruptive innovation and disruptive technology and and architectural innovation to fit all the scenarios is at best a naive attempt at explaining the why and how of how people work. Kodak, Sony, and Xerox were all highly innovative companies, each possessing an enviable track record. The technical teams at these organizations boasted of some of the sharpest minds, while the business leaders were equally brilliant. The leadership teams at these organizations could see what lay ahead. They had foresight. So when you have great business leaders and you have the leadership teams that can see ahead and you have a great technical team, then what, what's lacking? As with innovation, the lack of vision could not be a factor. They could articulate the challenges of the times ahead and the promises of untested technologies, yet somehow mis- mysteriously they were unable to put together a cohesive response strategy. It seemed no one at the hem of these companies could do the right thing. Almost Mysteriously, this inability to lead the tanks in place of horses that affects you know modern day enterprises as it did the British war leadership almost 70, 80 years back. 
The theory of disruptive innovation was not new in 1995 when it was first proposed or over two decades when it was further developed. And 25 years later, that's equally true. Perhaps the ideas were old, only the changing global nature of businesses made the traits ever so apparent. Or that disruption has been happening forever, we were just starting to recognize it now. Or perhaps uh, disruption is the new normal. I mean, it's normal for for companies to be uh, to completely overhem their way of working every five years, and it's normal for a new company like like TikTok or 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 a new company like Zoom to have billion dollar valuations within a short period of time. When a company discovers or arrives at a successful business model, often following years of painstaking work and and dedicated uh, investments, management are often given the explicit mandate to exploit that advantage to its fullest extent. This invariably means that most companies are structurally geared to manage, protect, and nurture their currently successful business models and worry less about innovation. All of the company's assets, structures, operations, human resources, processes, tools, and culture are geared towards doing what they have always done, protect, grow, and nurture its current strength. It is no surprise that that swords are pulled out when there is even a shadow cast on the company's current affairs. Any harbingers of change which bring a radical suggestion or new idea, no matter how sound or logically accurate, tend to be at odds with almost the entire company. It's as if nobody wants to disturb the existing hegemony. This is not this is not necessarily bad. Companies do need to exploit their current positions as this is where their revenues and profits are coming from. I mean, this is what pays the, the bills to keep the lights on. Well, that's true. The mistake organizations and leaders make is to focus exclusively on exploitation while ignoring most other ideas. And and that that perhaps is the single biggest reason of for the downfall. In the quest to understand the behaviors of leaders better, theory of disruptive innovation does seem to fall short. However, it is equally true that disruptive innovation changes the marketplace. Disruptive innovation doesn't speak to why the incumbent organizations fail to take action or why the same organization with brilliant track record at innovation suddenly stops innovating. Rebecca Henderson and Kim Clark postulated that unlike what is suggested in the theory of disruptive innovation, there are multiple points of failure where an organization fails to seize the opportunity. These points may exist all along, up and down the organization in no order like fault lines. For example, in JFC Fuller's case, almost every branch, company and division of the armed forces had little faith, mainly because many had not seen the tank in action. Well, you couldn't blame them in such a scenario. I mean, Major Fuller was asking them to to trust something that they had not seen. But what could explain that even when few generals and soldiers had seen the tanks in action, they fell back on the horses and cavalry? Now, that's something which is truly mind-boggling. 
Questions on its size, slow pace, cramped insights, and unsightly presence were all valid. The tank was all of that. Yet, those were all short-lived concerns. Then there are challenges about the financial viability of a product, or about, about its perceived value to the company, or about its future. An architectural innovation challenges an old organization because it demands that the organization remake itself. The simple explanation is that a market leader in producing print printers is much likely to accept breakthrough innovations in printer ink technology as there is no real organizational stress in pursuing that product line. Or in other words, anything that fits within the current mind frame, anything that fits within the current uh, line of products or, or with or with the current line of thinking is much likely and much more likely to, to get accepted than anything which which falls outside that so you know it's it's much easier for for xerox to have have thought that it it should innovate in the field of printer ink technology rather than in the in the field of computers Within the camera business, Canon and Nikon made the transition to digital technology successful, while Kodak could not. Again, the same reason. Uh, was Kodak hidebound and clueless about digital technology? Absolutely not. Kodak, Kodak had the digital technology at its, at its disposal. What killed Kodak, though, was that it hadn't really been a photography company for a long time. Rather, it was a fin for a paper and chemical company, and that's where it focused all its innovation and all its innovative energy. The message of Henderson's work with Kim Clark and others is that when companies or institutions are faced with an organizationally disruptive innovation, there is no simple solution. There may be no solution at all. I'm sorry, it's it's not more management guru-ish, but it's 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 not some kind of some kind of a gyan, but anybody who's really any good at this will tell you that this is hard. It's hard to do innovation. Tesla solar power vehicles, Tesla SpaceX, Tesla's home solar program are all examples of what happens when organizations shun perfectly valid ideas or technologies for lack of viability and lesser known players enter into the market to fill that small gap of that niche product. Before Tesla SpaceX, nobody had thought of private companies going into space and, and many governments many in many countries outsourcing their space programs to a private company tesla started off as a niche ev manufacturer went into solar space went into spacex and who knows what they would come up with next but one thing is for sure that whatever they come up with would be truly innovative and would be truly leading the pack it's no surprise today that Tesla has has become that the, the the most valued one of the most valued U.S. brands. And looking at at their at their recent performance in in terms of financials, I think it's it's a dream of most people to have owned a Tesla share a year back and and see it grow three times in value in in less than a year. Similarly. Uh, if you look at the oil industry, oil industry has dominated the game for almost 100 years now. 
Yet the implications for big oil are very, very straightforward. Adapt and invest in clean fuel or simply roll over. Roll over for some company to come and bring cleaner, cheaper technology to people and do good to the environment and do good to the people and do good to the society. And that is not exaggeration by any means. The writing has been on the wall for some time now and and everybody in oil industry is cognizant of the same. To wrap up, uh, the thing with new game-changing technologies, product or ideas is that it needs to find an organization or a mindset or a leadership that will accept it. Adaption of any new technology has severe implications. It not only challenges and changes the organization, but oftentimes creates a new industry or a segment altogether. At the very least, it creates a new way of working. The tank changed the modern warfare forever. Netflix ushered in an era of online streaming. Personal computers took computing out of huge air-conditioned rooms to homes. iPods and iPhones created an entirely new marketplace. And the digital cameras brought photography to 3-year-old and 80-year-old alike. These are all game-changers. Look at look at what companies like WeWork are doing. Look at look at what companies like Zoom and and TikTok are doing. They are all game changers. Their potential was not unknown to their parent organizations. And and even even their their best competitors did did YouTube know that there is a market for short fifteen second videos. <laughs> Only the organizations which are truly willing to change themselves or reorganize and adapt, reskin and lose their earlier identity and let that idea or technology or product guide it to the future and have the faith to to kind leave their leave their fate in, in the hands of an untested idea. Only those organizations which are mature enough to understand that that immaturity is a gift and to and to be successful in innovation, you also need to have a child's mind, a child's unspoiled, pure mind. Those are the organizations that can create unparalleled wealth and imaginable and unimaginable success stories. All right, that brings us to an end of this episode. Thank you, everybody, for listening in. We'll be back with more.